you're new with us, we're going through the Gospel of Luke, and today we're in chapter 4 of this Gospel. Uh, let's pray together and look at this uh, very important text in front of us. Father, I pray that um, as we open your word now, <clears throat> that your Holy Spirit would come and attend to uh, the ministry of the word, that you would encourage our souls and enlighten our understanding that we may be transformed more into the image of Jesus Christ. Come and work powerfully in your people's hearts, we pray right now in Jesus' good name. Amen. Oftentimes in uh, sports, you hear people talk about home field advantage, right? That um, it's, it's harder to win a game on the road than a game at home. Of course, that principle didn't hold up yesterday in the NFL as, as both visiting teams uh, won the games, but usually, if you are at home, you have a better chance to win uh, than on the road. In the SEC, almost every game I've watched in basketball this year, there have been a comment like, you, you better win all of your games at home because every road game is challenging. Well, that principle didn't hold up for Jesus when it came to his hometown in Nazareth. He had what you might call a hometown disadvantage. He was rejected from his hometown of Nazareth. They actually want to throw him off of a cliff. <laughs> Notice the context. Jesus is not weakened after his battle with Satan in Luke 4, as we uh, considered last week. Hope you were tuning in as I was uh, working through that text and trying to pronounce all of those names in that genealogy. But he is, he is not weakened. He's actually empowered. He returns, verse 14, in the power of the Holy Spirit, Luke tells us and the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and report went about him and throughout all the surrounding counties. So his fame is growing, and he taught, it says, in their synagogues, being glorified by all. So again, you see the repeated emphasis on the work of the Spirit in, in Luke's gospel. He also wrote, of course, the book of Acts, which has that strong emphasis on the necessity of the Spirit's work. Jesus has been anointed by the Spirit at his baptism, he was led into the wilderness, we looked at last week, by the Spirit, and now the Spirit's power is evident in his teaching. So we'll see next week uh, also in his work of miracles. Now we may expect that Jesus would, would start in Jerusalem. That was the epicenter of Jewish religion. But it's interesting, isn't it? Jesus doesn't start his ministry there. He's up with um, uh, the country bumpkins in, in Galilee. He's in a little, little small town of, of Nazareth. And we see that this, uh, the ministry of Jesus was done in this location that was disdained by influencers. And yet there he is. Galilee, it says that he regularly taught in the synagogue. Now, Walter mentioned this a few weeks ago about the importance of habits or customs. And one of the customs you see in the, in the life of Jesus is regular attendance in the synagogue. Regular Sabbath keeping. That was a pattern in Jesus's ministry. Now you would think in light of his, his victory in the, in the wilderness against the devil and this brief little snapshot of his ministry in Galilee being successful and him being praised, that what would follow would be another story of Jesus killing it. Instead, they want to kill him. Often someone says today, man, that was a killer sermon and that was a compliment, but this was a killer sermon in a different sense. They're offended at the sermon of Jesus. And they do to Jesus what will 
eventually happen to him at the end of his life, they want to put him to death. And already up front you see this, this, the life and ministry of Jesus being under the shadow of the cross, being under the shadow of rejection. He came into his own, John tells us, and his own did not receive him. Now something you should notice also in this story, Jesus being in, in Nazareth, is that Luke places this text in the beginning of the narrative, even though we know from Mark's gospel and Matthew's gospel that it happened later in the, in the ministry of Jesus. As we said before, these gospel writers are not merely writing biographies. Uh, that Luke, I think, front loads this story so that you can interpret the rest of his book in light of this story. Because this story shows us what Jesus came to do and who he came for, and, and how we can anticipate his being rejected by his own people. And so it's placed right here. The whole, this whole story is very important because it, it sort of controls how we should read the rest of the gospel. You know, sometimes things happen that change the way you view an entire event, right? I read recently of uh, the South Carolina baseball team were playing a group of inmates one time in, in a prison. And, uh, they, and one of the players for South Carolina got in an argument with the umpire. And they yelled out to him, hey, you better not argue with the umpire. He's doing life for murder. <laughs> and and, and you, know, you know that event changed the way they played the rest of the game. And, it, and it's that, it's that, that's a, that little bit of information matters, right? <laughs> and here Luke is saying this, this is something that you should hold in your mind as you read the rest of the story. It helps us understand the work of Jesus. Read it in light of Luke 4, 16 and following. Read it in light of Isaiah 61. That's what Jesus came to do. And so as we look at it this morning, I want you to consider as we look at this uh, sermon in Nazareth, th just three parts. First of all, the exposition of Jesus. Secondly, the claim of Jesus. And then thirdly, the post-sermon discussion with Jesus. First of all, the exposition. Right up front, you see <clears throat> the priority of expounding the Word of God for Christ. What does Luke tell us that he went to do right after he defeats the evil one in the wilderness? He went preaching. He went expounding the Scriptures. If you've got a Bible, jump over to verse 42 of chapter 4. We'll look at this next week, hopefully. And 43, after Jesus has cast out demons, he's healed people, his fame is growing. And then it says in verse 43, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. The priority of Jesus, the purpose of Jesus, Luke is telling us, was to preach. It was to expound the Bible. And he is the master of it. It's interesting, Jesus never went on a healing tour. He, he healed en route to do other things as a sign of compassion, as a sign of the kingdom of God breaking in, for a number of reasons. But, but Jesus went out preaching. And you see this right here placed in front of us in Luke 4. The word of God incarnate came preaching the written word of God. Nazareth, it's a town of about 400 people. It wasn't a wealthy town. You can visit it today. Nathaniel rightly summarized it when he asked the question, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Well, only Jesus, right? And he's entering into this synagogue service. We see that in verses 16 and following. These synagogues were basically like uh, 
similar to our auditorium, it was like an assembly hall. It's used for a variety of things. It could be used as a community center, as a school for kids, but it was also the place where uh, the Jews would gather weekly. You needed at least 13 male, or at least, uh, excuse me, uh, 12 males over the age of 13 for there to be a, a service. Um, and they gathered together, and they did certain things every Sabbath, every, every, uh, in every synagogue service. The Shema was recited, Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 and following. Prayers were offered, and then the scriptures were read from the, the Torah, the first five books, and then a section of the prophets. And after this reading, there was instruction. And often the, the speaker would, would link the text together that was just read. Service then concluded with a benediction. And often... The, uh, there were guests, and when guests were present, they were given the opportunity to teach. See an example of this in Acts chapter 13 when Paul is in Antioch, Pisidia. They, they ask him to, to stand up and preach. That's how I learned to preach, by the way, uh, in my mom's uh, small little church in Kentucky. Pastor would get up and say, how many want to hear Brother Tony preach? Amen. Brother Tony, you come preach. And that's, that's, that's how I started preaching, seriously. Uh, I would just get up and open a Bible and talk. Uh, some, one time a sermon went 12 minutes. I was like, that's all I got, man. Uh, and uh, he came up and, and finished the sermon that, that I had just started. And so Jesus here is the guest, and um, he's being called on to, um, to teach. Now notice in the text, it says that the scroll of Isaiah was given to him, but then it looks like he deliberately chose Isaiah 61 to read from. He found the place where it was written. Jesus draws particular attention to Isaiah chapter 61. And as he reads the text, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, recovering of the sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. He rolls up the scroll, hands it back to the attendant. That was like the the, kind of the supervisor of the synagogue, uh, and he, he would have attendants and servants, of course, and he hands the scroll back, and then Jesus sat down, which is how you see uh, teaching done in the synagogue. The teachers actually sat down. Uh, there's no way I could do that uh, on, on, a, on a Sunday, but nevertheless, he sits down to teach, and the eyes of everyone is fixed on him. What will Jesus say in this moment? Up till now, we imagine everything has followed the regular synagogue flow. But this was not the average synagogue sermon, was it? Jesus says something that had never been said in a synagogue service. Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. That was the ultimate mic drop. Jesus originated the mic drop. Today, this text in Isaiah 61 is fulfilled in your hearing. No one would have been asleep in this sermon. <laughs> it forces a reaction. It forces a decision. And Jesus still does that to people when they, when they hear who he is. You can be infuriated by Jesus. You can be disturbed by Jesus. But he won't let you go to sleep. His claims are too much. You have to do something with them. And the people here in Nazareth are like, who is this guy? Who does he think he is? 
You know, scholars have said that the name Jesus was a very a normal name. It was probably one of the top five names of the time. And so there was nothing, um, you know, th- there was no aura about Jesus in the sense of his name, his occupation, his vocation. He, he, he looked just like another guy that grew up in Nazareth. You know, it's kind of like our name's John or, or Jim. And you can imagine then the synagogue, hey, Jim's going to come and read Isaiah 61. Hey, Jim, come on up. And Jim says, today, guys, it's all about me. Today it's all fulfilled in me. It's just a one-line sermon. And what a one-liner it is. Saying that the Messiah is here in your presence. In Nazareth, of all places. And in the words of Doc Holliday in Tombstone, I'm afraid the strain was more than they could bear. (laughs) They, they, They could not endure such a claim. Now, before we look at that claim more in detail, I just want to underscore something here that's very obvious, and that is how important expounding the Scripture was in the ministry of Jesus. There are many ministries we should be part of, we should support, and we should should, uh, get behind. But here in this text, I want you to see the centrality of proclamation in the ministry of Jesus. Preaching was at the core of what he did. And his model was very simple and replicable. Stand up and read the Bible, explain it, and point people to Jesus. We follow the pattern, first and foremost, not of Augustine or Calvin or Luther, but Jesus himself. That's why we're about what we're about. He came into this synagogue and he preached. It was at the core of what he did. And it's interesting, the bookends of the Gospel of Luke, end, chapter 24, ends with Jesus after the resurrection expounding the scriptures doing the exact same thing. And if it holds primacy for Jesus, it must continue to hold primacy for God's people as well. We need to reject the very cynical view expressed in that old Madonna song, Papa Don't Preach, when it comes to biblical preaching and teaching. We need it. Christianity is heraldic. It is a word-driven faith. And so let's be about it. We should never underestimate the power of the proclamation of God's word in a small setting or in a large setting. All we need to do is see how this has worked out in the book of Acts to see how important it was. Sermon after sermon in the book of Acts. Exposition after exposition. Jesus prioritized it, handed it down to the apostles, and we carry on this great tradition. That's the exposition of Jesus. Secondly, notice here the claim of Jesus. What, did it, what, would he, what is he saying by saying, today this is all fulfilled in me? He speaks of his identity in verse 18, that the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. He has anointed me. Both of these are messianic descriptions. The title Christ derives from the verb to anoint. He is the Christ. He is the anointed one. And this anointing, I think, is also secondarily tied to the task of his ministry, of his preaching. The Lord has anointed him. He is Isaiah's servant that Isaiah speaks of in various places uh, after chapter 40 of Isaiah. And in that context, uh, Isaiah 40 to to 66, we read of a new exodus uh, of God bringing people out of exile. And Jesus is saying a new exodus is coming in a person. I have come to bring the real deliverance. I am the Messiah. I am the anointed one. And again, you see that Jesus does not operate in human strength. 
but in the power of the Spirit. And if Jesus depended on the Spirit, how much more do we need to depend on the Spirit in our ministry? His identity is mentioned. His ministry is mentioned. We see here that salvation is for four kinds of people, don't we? The poor, the captives, the blind, and the oppressed. This is the good news of Jesus. Right? Notice first, he came to proclaim good news to the poor. Notice three times he says he came to proclaim in this text. First of all, he said to proclaim good news to the poor. Now this literally refers to the material poor, but I don't think we have to limit it to that meaning, meaning as we read the, the rest of the Gospels. It points to a dependency on the Lord, right? Luke does have a special concern for the downtrodden, as we'll see uh, in the rest of our study, hopefully. But many in Nazareth were poor that day. Uh, this was a poor town, and yet many of them failed to embrace Jesus as Messiah, they may be poor, but they were not poor in spirit. They, they did not see their dependency upon the Lord. Jesus came to preach good news to those who know they need God's grace. So the rich are not uninvited, but they must come with need. We come to God not rich in spirit, not even middle class in spirit. We come to him poor in spirit. And those who admit their need can find salvation. In fact, in the illustrations that Jesus gives, he mentions a poor widow in Zarephath, and he mentions a rich military leader named Naaman. Both found salvation. The real secret is, will you humble yourself before him? Anyone can come, but they must come poor. They must come bankrupt. They must come to Jesus knowing that they, they do not measure up, they do not merit eternal life, and Jesus gives us something far greater than material riches, the riches of eternal life. And I love the fact that Jesus' first sermon here that Luke gives us is not a moral command, it's not an obligation, try harder, do more, it's a proclamation of grace. That's his first sermon. I have come to bring good news to the poor, and we as a church are good news people in a bad news world. We get to tell the world, which is filled with bad news and whack news, about the good news, right? Jesus said, I came to bring some real news, man. I came to bring the good news, Kilo, Skilo, yeah. And, and it's for everybody, anybody who will humble themselves and admit their need. Secondly, he says, he came to proclaim liberty to the captives. He came to bring release to prisoners. Again, I think we should read this in a spiritual sense. Because we don't see one single uh, time in the Gospels where Jesus actually releases anyone from prison. I mean, you see some cases in Acts, but you, but you don't see Jesus doing that uh, in his incarnate state in the Gospels. But Jesus does liberate a lot of people spiritually. He's all about liberty to the captives. This word release is used some 15 times in Leviticus 25, where we read about the year of Jubilee. And in that year, all debts were removed. All slaves were freed. People returned to their property. Jubilee was like a new exodus. It was freedom. It was liberty. And in other places in Luke Acts, this word is used for the forgiveness of sins. That's what forgiveness is like. It's having all of your debts removed. 
It's having all of your, your enslavement be released. It's, it's experiencing a new exodus. Jesus came so that we would be released from a debt we could not pay. He came to proclaim forgiveness of sins to those who know they're imprisoned by their sin. And that's why we sing, because we're free. My chains fell off, my heart went free. Our rose went forth and followed thee. He breaks the power of canceled sin. He sets the prisoner free. His blood can make the foulest clean. His blood availed for me. The third group is the blind. He came to give sight to the blind. Jesus often heals physically those who are blind in the Gospels. In fact, this is a miracle, if you remember some years ago, we preached through the Gospel of John, that this is a miracle that is unique to the Messiah. One of the expectations of Messiah is that he would give sight to the blind. And there are more miracles of blind people seeing in the ministry of Jesus than any other category of healing. And scholars have pointed out, you don't read of any account in the Old Testament of giving sight to the blind, that is, permanently, and none of Jesus' followers actually do it. The closest thing you have is uh, the story of Ananias laying hands on Saul. This is what the Messiah would do. He would give sight to the blind. But there's more, right? It would be a wonderful blessing to give physical sight to blind individuals, but that would still fail to address their greatest need, spiritual blindness. Jesus came to restore those who are spiritually blind. He, he came to help us see the grace of God. He came so that we could see our need and turn to Christ. And this is a prominent theme in the Gospel of Luke. See in Luke 24 that Jesus opened up their minds to understand the Scriptures. Where would we be if Jesus did not open up our minds to understand the Gospel? We would still be in our sin. And oftentimes when Jesus does heal a physical, physically blind person, like in the case of Bartimaeus, in Luke 18, he doesn't just leave, he follows Jesus. It's a picture, an illustration of, of what it's like, right, for the scales to fall off, for us to see Christ in all of his glory and his beauty and follow him. And like all the other miracles, this also is a sign, this is a, it, it's a miracle that's a sign of the age to come. One day, our faith will end in sight. Jesus came to give us sight, and we will see him. Now, he appeals in uh, verse uh, 50, uh, Isaiah 58, appeals to that verse in this text. It's interesting, as we look at this fourth group, that he came to give liberty to those who are oppressed. He doesn't cite uh, Isaiah verbatim. He leaves off the phrase to bind up the brokenhearted. And I, I think he incorporates Isaiah 58, verse 6, as a way of, of explaining that particular verse. It may be that Luke is piecing some of his exposition into his reading here. Nevertheless, it's a beautiful phrase here. He came to set at liberty those who are oppressed. That's Isaiah 58. In Isaiah 58, God is rebuking his people because they're fasting and doing religious things, but they're ignoring the needs of people around them. And he says, is this not the fast that I choose to loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed grow, go free, and to break every yoke? The oppressed. What a savior to come for oppressed people. Those who are crushed in spirit have a strong savior. Those who've been shattered by hard experiences in life. The bruised reed he will not break. He binds it up so that it will bear fruit again. 
So Jesus here is speaking about anyone dominated by the forces of evil in the world, including those who have suffered from abuse, including those who suffer from some kind of spiritual oppression. Jesus comes to set people free. Jesus loves the oppressed. He loves the broken. And he came to free us, to heal us. This past weekend I was in uh, Las Vegas and um, came home with a lot of money. Just kidding. Um, I, was, I didn't gamble at all, if you're interested. Um, but I was there preaching at a, at a conference uh, and, and at, uh, speaking to some church planners. And there was a guy that flew up for this conference from, from Dallas. And he, he was there because he came on a mission trip to help this church plant a few years ago. And he was so moved uh, by this experience because he was a guy who, he, a very successful businessman, an investor. He would take 40 to 50 trips a year, he said, to Las Vegas to, to gamble and such. Got addicted to drugs um, and was on top of one of those massive hotels and was about to jump, was about to commit suicide. And someone, by God's grace, found him and, and brought him off the ledge. And um, he found Christ. He's clean. So he hadn't been back to the city since that whole ordeal. And this brother is free. I mean, he is one happy guy. I mean, when you get saved out of heroin, you get saved, right? When you, when you come out of the bondage of addiction and the depth of despair that would drive one to suicide, and, and here he is, after I, I was leaving yesterday to go to the airport, and I said, man, I just marvel at what the Lord's doing in your life, and he just starts crying. He said, he saved my life. He saved my life. Oh, hero of heaven, you conquered the grave. You free every captive and break every chain. Oh, God, you have done great things. Yes, that's what Jesus came to do. You don't know where to look. You look to him. What a story, man. Unlike other tyrannical leaders who oppress people, Jesus, who actually had all the power and all the authority, came to free oppressed people. His word brings hope, doesn't it, to wounded souls. And so from Jesus here, we see an application for our ministries, I think, to keep the main thing, the main thing, to keep proclaiming the good news. Often the social gospel ends up being all social and no gospel. And while we're called to do good works, to be good neighbors, to be good citizens and do everything we can for society, we're to preach good news. So yes, let's feed the poor and proclaim the gospel. Yes, let's visit the prisoner and proclaim the gospel. Let's care for the physically disadvantaged and preach the gospel. Let's care for the oppressed and preach the gospel. He said, I came to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. This, again, is likely a reference to the year of Jubilee, but now it's sort of transformed. This is the year, the season, the era of grace, to proclaim God's grace. Jesus stopped short of saying what Isaiah says in Isaiah 61, 2, that this is the day of vengeance. Not because he doesn't believe in judgment, but because first is the opportunity of salvation, and then judgment. The message paraphrases it aptly, saying, this is the year for God to act. And Jesus is saying, it's right now. The good news is today. It's fulfilled in your hearing. As he rolls up this scroll. So where do we look for good news? We look to Jesus. He gives liberty. He opens up eyes. He proclaims grace. Jesus is the friend of sinners. 
He's the forgiver of sinners. And he's the freer of sinners. And that's why we worship him today. Well, thirdly, quickly, the post-sermon discussion with Jesus. How did their sermon-based small group go? Uh, <laughs> well, like most sermon-based small groups, they criticize the preacher, right? Watch out. <laughs> it actually starts with astonishment, but it ends in wrath. You see in verse 22, it strikes them, right? They marvel at his gracious words. They, they, they sense something unique in the ministry of Jesus, but they don't believe he's the son of God. You see, it's very similar to modern day folks who say something along the lines of Jesus was a great teacher and a great example, but he was not the son of God. Well, that first shows up in Nazareth. Like they, they don't deny that he's a good teacher, right? They, they don't deny certain attributes of his teaching. Here, Luke mentions his gracious words, but that he's Isaiah 61 in fulfillment. Well, they can't handle that. And so the mood shifts to skepticism. Is not this Joseph's son? That's not a compliment, is it? Like we know it's not a compliment from the other gospels. In Mark's gospel, for example, they say he's the carpenter's son. Think about that. There's no halo around Jesus' head to identify him. And so they're looking at a kid they probably watched grow up. They watched him build uh, popsicle houses. And they're like, hey, what's this all about? Can you imagine just... You know, seeing a guy at Lowe's Hardware every morning, Larry, and, and all of a sudden he stands up and says, I'm the Messiah. And that, that's the kind of thing that they're, they're, they're thinking about with Jesus. And so Jesus anticipates what they're thinking, and he quotes a, a proverb that was used in various circles of the time, physician, heal yourself. And I think the next line gives the meaning to that statement when they basically say, or he anticipates them asking, what you have done in Capernaum, why don't you do here in our hometown? They want Jesus to do what he did elsewhere. Healing should be at home for yourself. That is, for Nazareth. But Jesus doesn't do miracles on call. Jews, Paul says, demand signs. And you see, the problem here in Nazareth is a very similar problem to today. They wanted something more than the preaching of the gospel. Give me proof and I'll believe. Do a miracle. Get me out of debt. Take away my pain and then I'll believe. But that's not how it works. You know, the famous agnostic Bertrand Russell said that if he ever met God, they asked him what would he say, and he said, quote, not enough evidence, Lord. Not enough evidence. He wasn't willing to take God at his word, and they weren't in Nazareth either. We must receive Christ on his terms, not ours. We believe the message first, and then all is opened up to us. And so Jesus recognizes what's happening. A prophet's not welcome in his own hometown. That's a statement you read also in John's Gospel. And here we see the very sobering reality that unbelief is often found in surprising places. People like hometown heroes, but not hometown prophets. It's hard for some people in your own family probably to believe when you witness to them because you're so close to them. They've seen you, they've watched you. But Jesus doesn't appease his hearers. He actually mentions two Old Testament stories, one of Elijah and one of Elisha. Elijah is exhibit A as he mentions this story of this widow in Zarephath. 
If you don't recall the story, it's in 1 Kings chapter 17. Elijah is told to go there, this enemy-occupied area, and all she has is a bit of flour and, and oil. And, she tells, and Elijah says, hey, can I have some bread? And she says, I only have like one meal left, and then we're going to go die. And Elijah says, no, make me some bread, and you'll have enough. And she lives on this miraculously, this, this jug of oil and this flour. But first, she had to believe the message of the prophet. And then she saw a miracle. And the same is true in the story of Elisha, the story of Naaman. He is a leper, and he is told, go wash seven times in the Jordan, and you'll be clean. And first he objects to that, and then he goes. You see, first there is the belief of the message, and then there was the miracle. And here, as Jesus comes into Nazareth, he's saying several things with these two stories. First of all, that salvation is not limited to Israelites. That the gospel of, uh, to the nations is not an afterthought. It's embedded in the Old Testament. And he shows us here that God has chosen in the past to pass over the Jews for the Gentiles. And then most practically, I think, these stories show us that those with the greatest privileges often do not respond to the gospel rightly, and those that you never think will respond to the gospel often do. And so maybe you're here today or watching online, and you think Christianity is for other people, that you're, you're, you're not invited or not welcomed. Well, belief can be found in surprising places, just like unbelief can be found in surprising places. And I find great encouragement in here, as I'm sure you do, that Jesus uses these stories to say, you know, I'm not the first preacher to be rejected. They rejected Elijah. They rejected Elisha. In both of these cases, these individuals had to believe before they saw this miracle. And so Jesus brings up these stories in their discussion, and then the discussion doesn't end well. Verse 28, when they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. And they rose up and drove him out of town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down off the cliff. How was the sermon today, Jesus? Did you enjoy preaching in your hometown? They tried to throw me off a cliff. Jesus confronted, I think, several things. He confronted their ethnic pride and he confronted their spiritual pride. Who does he think he is? You see, in Nazareth, they weren't willing to admit they were poor. They weren't willing to admit they needed to be freed or that they were blind. And Jesus leaves. And we don't read anywhere else in Luke's gospel that Jesus ever went back to Nazareth. And somehow, in verse 30, he, like Houdini, just passes through their midst. (laughs) Like, what happened to Jesus? Where did he go? Luke doesn't give us the details to satisfy our curiosity. One might see even not just a a shadow of the cross in this story, but of resurrection as well. This anger foreshadows what will happen at the end of Jesus' ministry. Crucifixion. And it should encourage us when we're rejected, when we're faithful to the gospel, even Jesus was rejected. But notice, the story of Luke has many chapters left. Jesus doesn't stop when he's rejected. He doesn't stop when he's criticized. And I would say to you, if you 
are here and you're not a Christian, but you continue to be around the church, this is an important verse for you. You can be familiar with Jesus, but not in Christ, not really be a Christian. J.C. Ryle says, how apt men are to despise the highest privileges when they are so familiar with them. So consider yourself privileged to hear the gospel, but don't just hear it, believe it. Jesus is rejected not in Sodom and Gomorrah, but Nazareth. It'd be like saying he was rejected in the church. He was rejected around people who heard the message. And so believe. Don't reject this Savior. Receive this Savior. He has come to bring us liberty, to bring us grace, to give us sight, to save us. And we worship him today as the Messiah. Father, we thank you for your word today. What good news it is that Jesus came to proclaim, that Jesus came to accomplish. And we, your people today, marvel at the grace we have received in Christ. Thank you, Jesus, for being the friend of sinners, the forgiver of sinners, and the freer of sinners. We celebrate your grace today. And now as we turn our attention to the table, we are reminded at the great rejection that happened at Golgotha, the event that has given us all the benefits that we enjoy today as you were rejected and despised and crucified for us in our place. And we're grateful today that you endured that punishment and that you rose from the dead and that you reigned victoriously. And we long one day for our eyes to see you. And until that day, I pray you would grant us grace to be faithful. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.